All right, very good. Hopefully you have your bulletins. Here we go, Unreasonable Grace. We're going through the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. I am determined to finish chapter 10 today. That's why I didn't read a scripture at the beginning of service, because I wanted to buy myself a little extra time. We're headed for verse 32 is where we're going to start, and we're going to end on verse 42. So um, hopefully we get through all of it. I titled this, The Economy of Following Christ. I, I think that that is a strong title because it encompasses more than what we typically think of whenever we start talking about the cost of following Christ because that's addressed in our text this morning, but there's, there's the cost of following Christ, but then there are the benefits of following Christ. So this morning, Jesus is not only expounding on the high cost of following him, which is kind of where we've been in chapter 10, but he's also going to... He's also giving kind of the lay of the land, so to speak. And that's why I chose the word, the economy of following Christ, because it involves more than just the cost, more than just the benefit. It's this whole economy of our life in Christ. It is about how we give and how we receive. It is about the cost. It is about the reward. It is about the economy of following Christ. So think in broad strokes this morning, um, the economy of following Christ. So number one. Uh, simply t- uh, simple point is acknowledge Jesus. That seems simple enough. Acknowledge Jesus. In the previous verses, Jesus is encouraging the 12 apostles. Remember, he chose them at the beginning of chapter 10. He's encouraging the 12 apostles to not fear those who could cause him bodily harm because they are spreading the message of Jesus, the Messiah. It's a very real Risk. So today's text kind of follows up with that, uh, the previous text. Although it may be a risk to your physical life now, acknowledging Jesus in, on this earth is very important. Okay? Acknowledging Jesus on this earth presently is very important. Here's the text. Verse 32, engage your brain. Here we go. Everyone who acknowledges, Jesus is speaking here, by the way. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, got that under your belt? I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. I'm going to read it again because you got to absorb this. This is important and we're going to tie it back in at the end. Everyone who acknowledges Jesus publicly here on earth, Jesus will also acknowledge before his Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. In heaven. So Jesus has just made it clear that these 12 apostles will be hated, persecuted, and called bad names. We talked about that last week. But if they acknowledge, even though they're going to be persecuted and hated, if they still acknowledge, faithfully acknowledge Jesus publicly, then Jesus' promise to them is that he will acknowledge them. Are you imagining this? Before God the Father in heaven. I think that that's just super, super cool. And then he states it in the negative. He says, if you deny Jesus here on earth, Jesus will deny you before the Father in heaven. 
Um, that's not quite as pretty. Uh, I'm not a big fan of this word acknowledge here in our, our translation. Uh, we often use the word acknowledge in the sense of simply recognizing someone's presence. Like you acknowledge that somebody's here. Like, glad you're here. And then you ignore them, right? <laughs> you just want to be acknowledged. Just, just notice that I'm standing here. That's, that's kind of how we use the word acknowledge. And that's not what's intended here. Um, the New American Standard uses the word. They translate it confess. Uh, here's the long version. The amplified Brent's version, all right? Here's the, here's the definition of this word that is translated confess or acknowledge. I want you to listen carefully. I don't usually do this because usually we get lost in the weeds whenever we do definitions, but I want you to hear this. So he says, acknowledge. Acknowledge me here on earth. To profess in a manner that is accessible, accessible to, or observable by the public. Okay? So he says, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, he's saying to profess in a manner that is accessible to, in other words, anybody can see it. It's accessible, it's there, it's obvious, and observable by the public. By words and by actions, those around us know that we follow Christ Jesus. Got that? That's good. That's important. It's not simply a word thing where we go and tell people that we're a Christian and we go to church or we wear the t-shirt or have the bumper sticker on our cars, oh Lord Jesus help us. It's not simply an action thing where we just, I'm a good person so I don't have to tell people about Jesus. No, it is your commitment to follow Christ. Your commitment to follow Christ is intentional and it is observable by others. When people are around you, they know by the way you behave and the way that you speak, you are a follower of Christ. I'm intentionally not saying that you are a Christian because we throw that word around way too much. People are around you and they know this is a person who follows Christ. They don't just attend church, they actually take that scripture and apply it to their lives and live it. This is what Jesus meant when he said, everyone who acknowledges me, it is a public display of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it comes to kind of a basic, a pretty basic question for us. When you stand before God on judgment day, would you like Jesus to say something along the lines of, "Um, I, I know Brent, I know who he is. Or would you rather Jesus respond more along the lines of, yes, that's my friend Brent. We've been through some stuff together. I'm so glad to see him here. Yes, Father, I know this guy. He's going to be fun. We'll have tacos together. (laughs) Hallelujah. To kind of illustrate it, this idea of, of how we acknowledge people, um, my, my wedding ring does not simply acknowledge uh, that I had a wedding with Diane. It's not just simply a wedding. You understand that? For all the men, here's the wise thing to do. Shake your head yes. 
Oh, that's good, Brent. That's good. Even if you don't understand it, just say that's good. My wedding ring means so much more than I just had a wedding with Diane. No, it, it observably communicates to the public that I have made a commitment sealed with vows to be faithful to her, to protect her, and to love her for the remainder of my life. That's what it symbolizes. I am not available for other romantic relationships. I am committed to this relationship with Diane and Diane alone. So guess what? Diane likes it whenever I acknowledge her in public. That's true. Uh, When we have meals here at the church, she likes it when I come sit with her. There's been a few times that I haven't. Whenever I got home, I was given more information about how important it is <laughs> to sit next to her. Because <laughs> I get excited about all of you being here and I want to say hi to everybody. And Diane's like, but I'm your wife. And so I go sit by her and she likes to be acknowledged that she's my wife. When we go to the mall, I walk with her to stores I don't really want to go to. But I like walking with her. And I might even share a pretzel and a Dr. Pepper with her. Hallelujah. I will even hold her purse outside of the dressing room. Everyone can clearly see we have a bound relationship. Gentlemen, if you're holding your wife's purse outside of the dressing room, this is serious. Very serious. Ladies, we don't do that for just anyone. I mean... You have to be pretty special for a man to take your purse. You ever watch the guys outside of the dressing room and they're trying to hold it? How do you, you're like, set it on the floor and just watch it. Don't touch that, it's my wife's. Try to put it under your arm, that looks weird. You carry it by the strap, put it on your shoulder, no. Oh, it's so weird. Things we do for those that we love. Those who acknowledge Jesus by virtue of how they behave, Jesus will acknowledge before God. See how that works? We don't hide our relationship with Jesus. I would argue we can't hide our relationship with Jesus. Kind of not to overplay the illustration, but if you're holding some woman's purse and somebody says, are you married to her? No, I don't know her. We have a problem, right? We, we cannot hide our relationship with Jesus when we have a real relationship with Jesus. Our words, our actions, we live our relationship with Jesus and we acknowledge Jesus. It is very public. Number two, not peace, but war. Now, as I went through this, I actually started working on this outline uh, last week and I'm thinking, okay, here it is, December, and I am just gonna totally mess up everything we think about Christmas. Uh, Nonetheless, here we go, okay? This is kind of against the season. Not peace, but war. Now, remember, the majority of chapter 10 has been Jesus warning the 12 apostles that they are not going to be accepted by everyone. In fact, they'll be mistreated because of their faith. I hope you remember all of that. If they are expecting a Messiah... The Jews specifically, if the Jews are expecting a Messiah to come and make everyone feel warm and fuzzy and hold hands and smile real big, 
That's not going to happen. Are you okay? Because whenever I'm looking through this, I'm like, wait, but that's always how we present the Christmas season. Peace on earth. We're all going to hold hands and sing kumbaya and grin at one another. And Jesus says very explicitly in this text, no, no, that's not the way it's going to be. Don't leave yet. Let me read the text. Verse 34, he says, don't imagine that I, Jesus, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Now, there's a great visual. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Verse 36, your enemies will be right in your own household. I was going to save this text for Christmas Eve. <laughs> Verse 34, he says, Don't imagine that I came to bring peace on earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Now, the word sword, uh, not li- it's not meant to be literal because I, I can't think of a time that Jesus actually uh, had a sword, carried around a sword. Among the Jews, the word sword was often used figuratively as war or murder or strife. Jesus did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Luke records similar words. He says, do you think, in chapter 12, verse 51, he says, do you think I have come to bring peace to earth? No, I have come to divide people against each other. Brent, how does this fit in our theology? I have no idea. No, I do. I'll help you out. Surely that's not face value. That's not what Jesus means. Surely that's not. Because because he says there's going to be division in our own homes. And then he goes right into giving examples where he says a man will be against his father and a daughter will be against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and your enemies will be right in your own home. This is not a pleasant thought. This is not how we typically categorize Jesus coming to earth. However, in America, we have seen growing, I think. I think we're seeing more families that have been, that have been and are presently being divided over religion. We have more religions on American soil than I think we've ever had before. I'm qualifying that by saying I think. And so now you have Christianity butting up against the the values of other religions. You have biblical Christianity butting up against the values of non-biblical Christianity. That's scary. I mean, if we're butting up against people that don't believe in the word of God, then whatever. I mean, we can, we can work that out. But it's when churches say we are, we are followers of Christ, but we don't use the Bible. Uh, boy, that's, that's alarming. It's dividing. Ah, see what happened there? It's dividing. I have family members on my side of the family who have told stories of many people that they've worked with themselves in other countries, uh, who when they converted to Christ, their families completely disowned them 
I think it's still kind of hard for us to get our mind around in America. Um, but these are young people who come to Christ and now there's no more contact with mom and dad, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles. There's no, no expectation of inheritance. You're gone, you're not part of the family anymore. There's no peace. In fact, many are threatened with physical harm. So we like to talk about Jesus bringing peace, but when we look at the reality of as Christ comes into uh, families, it can be incredibly divisive. Now, we love our family. At least I'm saying we inclusive. I'm, I'm hoping you love your family too. And so we want to have the, we want everybody in our family to have the same religious views and convictions as we do because we think we're right. <clears throat> And then this man called Jesus comes along and uh, our kids start to think differently than we do. Or maybe a dad's priorities, all of a sudden they change and he wants the family to all go to church on Sunday instead of doing what the family has done before, you know, sleep in, watch TV, work in the yard, whatever it is, you know, other priorities, your priorities change. Or mom comes to know Jesus and now she wants to pray about everything. <laughs> Mom, right? Dad wants to go to church. Mom wants to pray. Change in faith affects those closest to us. So when there's a non-believing family and one person begins to believe, there comes a division. Change in faith affects those closest to us. If, if your neighbor uh, that you barely know, if they change their faith, it may bother you, it may not, but you're probably not gonna you know, go plead with them or, or go threaten them that they shouldn't believe a different way. It's, we don't care that much. But whenever it's our family, we want them to be on the same page as we are. And if we're wrong and Jesus inserts himself, there comes division. If we believe in Jesus and we have non-believing family members, there becomes this division. Some of you, well, we probably feel it more in the holidays than any other time of the year. There's families in our church that have, for practical purposes, have been disowned by family members because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, it only happens across the ocean. No, it, it's happening right here in Farmington. And then in the text, Jesus is going to turn up the heat a little more about family relationships. Hold on to your britches. I'm just going to read the text, so don't get upset at me. I'm going to give you, well, anyway. Verse 37. Verse 37. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you okay? Do you know where this is going? You already read the slide, didn't you? If you love your father or mother more than you love me, me is Jesus here, if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than you love me, Jesus, you are not worthy of being mine. It's kind of hard to take, isn't it? Because um, even in Christianity and modern Christianity, family is very important. 
I think uh, in the last few years, I've brought it up a couple of times, but it bears repeating. Our patriotism in America has been challenged. It has challenged our Christianity. Our, let me rephrase that. Our patriotism has challenged our Christianity uh, because values start butting heads. What happens when our family challenges our faith in Jesus? Are you listening to the question? What happens when our family challenges our faith in Jesus? What happens when Jesus is forbidden in our home or at our dinner tables? By the way, that's not a hypothetical. That's a real life, heard the story. I heard someone recently say something to the effect that our children are the gods of the 21st century. Even in churches. What happens when your teenager or your young adult no longer wants to share your faith and is even offended by your faith in Jesus? Mom, dad, don't pray in front of me. I don't believe in your God. What are you gonna do? Do you stop acknowledging Jesus when your kid is around because they're offended by your faith? What happens when your parent or your spouse your parent or your spouse resents your belief in Jesus Christ. Are we going to have a Christ-free Christmas so that we can accommodate the family? Do you stop acknowledging Jesus when your unbelieving family is around? You're not okay. You see, loving your parent or your child more than Christ will determine whether you acknowledge Christ when they are around. I'm going to say that again real slow. Loving your parent or your child more than Christ will determine, if you love your parent or your child more than you love Christ, that will determine whether or not you acknowledge Christ when they are around. Because if you love them more than you love Christ, then you will do what it takes to acknowledge that relationship and deny the relationship you have with Christ because you value that relationship with your family more than you value your relationship with Christ. Now you're asking, oh, what if I lose my relationship with my family? What about that, Brent? What if I offend them and I lose my relationship with my spouse, with my parent, with my kids? My kids! What if I lose my relationship with my kids over my faith? And the bigger question the eternal question is, for you, am I going to faithfully acknowledge Christ as king around my unbelieving family? Because Jesus warns us, there will be division because of him. And he says, if you deny Jesus here, he'll deny you before the Father. Kind of a problem, isn't it? But Brent, I love my kids. I, I love my kids too. Do you love your kids enough to communicate to them that Jesus is more important to you than they are? You okay? Do you love your kids enough to communicate to them that Jesus is more important to you than they are? Because they are going to need that example. They need somebody in their life to set an example that says, I sacrifice all of my life 
for Jesus to be acknowledged in my life? Who else is going to demonstrate faithfulness to your children if you don't? So, so faithfulness is more important than affirming them and loving them more than we love Christ. I would argue that if you love your kids at all, and if you believe in Christ Jesus, you will take every opportunity to let your kids know, hold on to your britches. This is why I don't get to teach the parenting class anymore. You will take every opportunity to let your kids know that they are not the center of your universe and that Jesus is. And that Jesus is their, Jesus is their only hope. Not you and not themselves. That is so countercultural. But I'm their mom. I, they need me. No, they need Jesus. Amen. Save this one for Mother's Day. <laughs> <laughs> they need to see your life centered around Jesus, that Jesus is your first and foremost priority as opposed to making yourself or them happy. However, however, if you love your family more than you love Christ, you have proven that you are not worthy of belonging to Christ. See, some of you want to make war with me now. <laughs> I love kids. I, I love my kids. I love your kids but I do not love any of them more than I love Jesus, okay? We gotta get our brain around that. All right, Jesus expands the whole idea in the next few verses. He says, number three, here we are. He, it just keeps getting harder and harder. Uh, number three, give up your life. Give up your life. This is a theme that is throughout scripture in various forms. I'm not gonna take the time, it was just a side thought. Here we go, verse 38. He says, if you refuse... To take up your cross, I think we've lost the meaning of that. I'll explain it here in a second. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. And if you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you give up your life for me, what does it say? You will find it. Isn't that brilliant? I mean, this is, this is just amazing. I, I, he says, take up your cross and follow me. Now, obviously, taking up your cross is yeah, it's figurative language, uh, but what does it mean? Here's what I think it means, because Jesus is speaking to a mostly Jewish uh, uh, group of people, um, and then Matthew is, is targeted at Jewish people. Uh, they are under Roman oppression. And so in the Roman culture of crucifixions, a criminal carrying his own cross... A criminal carrying his own cross was a silent admission of guilt and agreement that the Roman Empire was correct in carrying out the death sentence. That gives us context, okay? Why is carrying the cross so important? Because we even repeat it a lot now, and, and I don't think we know really what it means, but we repeat it. So in the Roman culture, a criminal carrying his own cross was a silent admission of guilt and agreement that the Roman Empire was correct in carrying out the death sentence. So, so here's the snapshot. You have a criminal, he commits a crime. The judge sentences him to death by crucifixion. The criminal knows that he is guilty. He knows that the sentence is just. So he publicly carries the cross on which he will die. That's the picture. 
The criminal will carry the cross on which he will die to the place where he will die because he recognizes his own guilt and shame. He recognizes his own guilt and shame. This is just, so I will carry this cross. Now Jesus says, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. Are you making the connection? If you refuse to acknowledge your own sinfulness, your own guilt, your own shame, Take up your own cross and follow after Jesus, following Jesus because he's got a better plan than you do for life. If you refuse to acknowledge your own sinfulness, guilt, and shame and follow Christ, you are not worthy of belonging to Jesus. Our cross is our admission of our own guilt and shame. The reason I get really wound up and passionate about it is because I think that a lot of modern church is like, I'm not that bad of a sinner. You know my neighbor? You know the people I go to church with? Oh, they're bad. We'll talk and sing about take up our cross and follow Jesus, but none of us are the sinners. We're going to cover that in systematic theology. Come to that class. I'll beat the shame into you. Make sure that everybody knows you are a shameful, sinful, good-for-nothing. And that's, that's why, that's why verse 39, all right, here's the big win, all right? That's why Jesus tells us, and we have, if you don't believe this, then you're not 39, verse 39 means nothing to you. It's just, just a lot of blah, blah, blah. Let's just keep singing about taking up our cross and following Jesus. We like that. Here's the big win of verse 39. If, if we know that we're carrying our cross out of our own guilt and out of our own shame, then he says, if you cling to your life, which is filled with guilt and shame, you will lose it. But what do we do? This is my life. I have a certain plan for my life. I have things that I want for my life and for my family, for my spouse, my kids, my parents. I have, I have a plan for my life and nobody's gonna take it from me. He says, but if you give it up, if you give up your stinky life for Jesus, he says, you will find it. That's, That's a good economy, right? Jesus comes to us and he says, you stink. And if you give me your life, I'll give you the glory of God. I think it's good. I don't know. Jesus is introduced. Did I cover all my notes? What time is it? Oh, we're doing good. No, actually we're not. Jesus has instructed the 12 apostles that they'll be mistreated and persecuted. Then he tells them, by the way, there's going to be war. And then this this is his assurance. This is always Jesus' weird assurance and encouragement. Your life is shameful. Shameful. Your life is shameful. It's good for nothing. So own it. Own the fact that you're guilty of sin and and that your sin offends the one true and holy God. Just own it, recognize it, take up your cross and then give it up. This is the economy 
of following Jesus. When we acknowledge Jesus before others here on earth, Jesus acknowledges you before God the Father in heaven. If you know a better deal than that, let me know and I'll preach that. But so far, I don't have a better message other than the kingdom of heaven is near and all you have is worthless. And Jesus is offering you forgiveness of your shameful sin and eternal life. So why would you not just give him your life and say, Father, I've got nothing, here I am. All right, number four, here's your reward. We'll finish up chapter 10. Your reward, as, as we read this, uh, keep in mind, you're in the position of listening to Jesus speak to the 12 apostles, I think is the right way to look at this. Verse 40, he says, anyone, he's talking to his 12 apostles, anyone who receives you, the 12 apostles, receives me, and anyone who receives me receives the Father who sent me. Got that idea? That's kind of the umbrella of thought there. Anyone who receives the 12 apostles and their message about Jesus the Messiah, being the Messiah and their Savior, receives Jesus and the Father who sent him. Verse 41. It's a similar... similar. Uh, if you receive a prophet as one who speaks for God, you will be given the same reward as a prophet. And if you receive righteous people, if you receive righteous people because of their righteousness, you will be given a reward like theirs. And if you give even a cup, this is where I'm, I'm going to camp. And if you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers, and I think he's still talking about, uh, well, he's just talking about his followers, okay? You will surely be rewarded. If you just give a cup to the least of, Jesus, of cold water to the least of Jesus' followers, okay? So the 12 apostles are going out to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, he's Lord, he's Savior. Anyone who receives them, the apostles, receives the Father who sent Jesus. And then Jesus pretty much repeats the same idea. Anyone who receives a prophet, um, referring to the 12 apostles, uh, will be rewarded the same as a prophet. Anyone who receives a righteous person, again, I believe that Jesus is referring to the 12 there that he's sending out, uh, you will be rewarded. And then verse 42, if anyone gives a cup of water to one of the least of my followers, you will be rewarded. So Matthew chapter 10, we have Jesus, he chooses the 12 apostles, and then he instructs them that they will be persecuted it's going to be bad, it's going to be terrible, it's not going to be easy, and then he ends with, this instruction. And then there's a, big, there's a pretty big transition into chapter 11. So this is, this is an important part. Whenever he comes to the end of a section, this is very important. Everyone who receives these apostles and blesses them, even with a small, something as small as a drink of water, will be blessed by God. I know I'm severely rephrasing that, but that's the gist of it. Anyone who blesses these 12 apostles will be blessed by God. So what is the application for you and I? I think it's very broad. I think we need to keep the application very broad. That we receive or we welcome and we bless, even if it's just a cold cup of water, all of those who acknowledge Jesus. See, that whole acknowledging Jesus is an important key in this whole verse, or this whole passage. We as believers, we look around and those 
fellow believers who are publicly acknowledging Jesus, we receive them, we welcome them, we bless them. That's not to say that we don't bless others, but our relationship is different, right? Our relationship with believers is different than it is with non-believers. Every once in a while I hear people say, you know, you, you hang out with a group of people and all of a sudden you know that there's a connection and you say, I am a Christian and they say they're a Christian and now all of a sudden you went from not knowing anything about this person to now you, you assume that you know a whole lot about them and there's this strong connection. My mom was great about it. She had a garage sale. She would tell everybody she was a Christian. And so then if they were a Christian, now it was a 45-minute conversation about faith and all that God has done and da-da-da-da-da. That was my mom. If you're ever around her, she, if she thought that you shared faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there was going to be a big conversation about it because there's this assumption of common ground. There's this assumption of good relationship. I'm way off. We welcome other believers into our lives and we bless them. Because Jesus has warned us, the world is not going to bless us. The world is not going to bless believers. We need to stop thinking and imagining that because we're followers of Christ, everybody's going to be at peace with us. That, that is the opposite of what scripture says. There will be division. So within the body of Christ as believers, we need to make sure that even if it's the least of the followers of Christ, that we bless them with at least a cup of cold water. It's good, huh? The economy of following Jesus is simple, and I'm at the end. We acknowledge our guilt and shame. I think that that is fundamental. If you do not acknowledge your guilt and shame, if you can't bear your own cross, if you do not recognize your sinfulness, you'll never follow Christ. You'll never follow Christ. So we acknowledge our guilt and our shame, we acknowledge Jesus as our savior and therefore we follow in giving up our life so that we may receive his eternal life. And when we live in that blessing, then we bless others who acknowledge Jesus Christ because we should. That's just what happens inside of us. When we're blessed, we wanna bless other people. And the icing on the cake is that we live in this economy that is persecution and hatred, but we live in it blessed. How does that work, Brent? I don't know, supernatural. We may be persecuted and blessed simultaneously. God did that, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. Jesus will tell God the Father as we, as we give our life to him, as we take up our cross and we follow him, Jesus will tell God the Father that he knows you. That's a scene you want to see. Jesus will tell God the Father that he knows you and that he likes you and that you'd be great in the kingdom of heaven. Father, bring those people from desert heights in because they've recognized their shame and they've recognized the glory of Jesus. Jesus. 